Good afternoon and welcome to another session of ODEI Live with Hudson Valley Community College's Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. I'm Tanya Hannibal-Williams, the Community Outreach Specialist, and we're here today with Ainsley Thomas, the college's Chief Diversity Officer, and also Zoe Obrey, Technical Assistant and SARP Director. And our guest today is Dr. Hayward Derrick Horton. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Hayward Derrick Horton is professor of sociology at the School of Public Health at the State University of New York at Albany. He holds a BA in sociology from Norfolk State University and an MA and PhD from the Pennsylvania State University. His areas of specialty are demography, race, ethnicity, entrepreneurship, and community and economic development a former president of the Association of Black Sociologists. He is recognized internationally as the father of critical demography. Dr. Horton has published extensively in the areas of the demography of racial inequality, race, ethnicity, and entrepreneurship, and has also published in the impact of race on wealth, status, and power. His most recent co-authored books are Colorstruck, how Race and Complexion Matter in the Colorblind Era, and Race, Population Studies, and America's Public Schools. Finally, he is a co-editor of Issues in Race and Society, the official journal of the Association of Black Sociologists. Professor Horton's personal philosophy is that sociologists have an obligation to apply their knowledge to make a difference in society. Thank you so much, Doc, for coming and speaking with us today. I am so excited to learn more about you and to have you share yourself with the larger community. I'd like to first just start off uh, on a personal note and wondering if you could share a little bit about your life stories, your family, the culture that you were brought up in, and who were some of your role models growing up? Sure, sure. Uh, <clears throat> Well, first off, um, I want to say that uh, this is my this is my late father's birthday, and I always want to recognize that. Uh, uh, actually, uh, he would have been eighty-five today, uh, so uh, God bless him. But um, <clears throat> I'm originally from Norfolk, Virginia, uh, born and raised there. My parents divorced when I was nine. I was raised primarily by my mother, although my father was in my life in the sense that uh, I would see him from time to time. Uh, spend, and, my and my brothers and I, two brothers and I would, would go to stay with him from time to time. But, but I was raised primarily by my mother. My mother was a teacher and uh, she went to Norfolk State as I did, as well as my youngest daughter went to Norfolk State. And uh, she was an AKA. Uh, and uh, she got a master's at Hampton University. And so the person who I looked up to mostly uh, was my mother. Uh, she was a strong woman, a very disciplined woman, and, um, and a woman who, um, despite 
obstacles that, that life threw at her, she was able to overcome. And so I didn't have to have anyone to tell me about the importance of education because uh, I saw my mother. I mean, and when, when I was born, my mother uh, was actually a sophomore in college. My father at the time, uh, they were a young married couple. My father at the time was a, uh, he was a, a cook at, at the Naval base. Uh, and so, and so, so I'm one of those college babies. And so uh, when my mom couldn't get a, uh, couldn't get a babysitter, she would take me in there. And, uh, and the fact is I even have memories of when she was a teacher and if I couldn't get to school because I was sick, like well, maybe first or second grade, and she might have taught sixth grade or something like that, I remember I have a vivid memory of going to her class and she putting me at a little table and giving me some work to do, and the older kids marveling at me as I worked. So I'm a college baby, and so and on that note, I've always told my students that hey, listen, uh, if you have a child, never let that be a reason. For, to not to come to class as long as you can control your child even if it's a baby you bring that baby in here you uh and you you come to class okay uh because there's always a place you know i've always been that way because i'm a college baby wow and so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so uh and so yeah so so that my, my mother was the inspiration she she instilled in me to believe that i could do anything that uh she instilled me to believe i should use all of my talents and yeah. not and not just this little one and put everything else on the shelf. And so I try to live my life by, by, by living all of my talent, using all my talents. And um, I think I've been reasonably successful at that. I think so. We're gonna learn a little bit more about those successes in your life. I'm gonna hand the next question off to Ainsley. Okay. Yeah, you know, uh, um, so I'm curious, did any of your students take you up on that offer to bring their student, their children oh, to the child? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, um, let me tell you something. Uh, I've had, I've had, I had one of my students to contact me. She's a successful lawyer in Miami. Mm -hmm. And she said, Dr. Horton, you might not remember this, but you let me bring my child to class. It was my race and ethnicity class. And she, here at SUNY Albany. And uh, she now, I've been at SUNY Albany now, my goodness, I'm in the middle of my 26th year at SUNY Albany. I've been Congratulations. A well, thank you. And I've been a professor for 37 years. And so, uh, and so she, she really, she really thanked me uh, for that. It was a couple of years ago. She thanked me for that. I said, oh yeah, thank you. I said, I do remember <laughs> her. And then, but last year, just, this is just before, let me see now, let me get it straight. This was the fall of 2019. Okay, I had a I had a, a a student to come to my office on office hours, and she brought her mother. And her mother said, "You you don't remember me, but I was a student of yours at Iowa State University, and you wrote a letter of recommendation for me." Oh. <laughs> And I went to, she said she went to Oklahoma State, <clears throat> met her husband there. And they, and they went back to, the, to New York City, that's where he was from, and uh, started a family. And so now her daughter was in my class. <laughs> I'm telling you, 
came full Sorry. circle, Doc. You know, you know Doc, I'm, I'm feeling the emotions myself, you know, because, I mean, this is why we do the work that we do. This is why we're, we work with the heart. You know, this, this is not hard work, it's heart work. Because when you infuse that much energy to what you believe in passion, this is what happens to circle, the full circle. But I don't want to get caught up in this moment right now because we got to get through some other questions. So, sorry, um, sorry guy, I get emotional. <laughs> it's all right. That's okay. That's why we love you, Doc. Yeah. <laughs> so your sociology, you focus on sociology. So how did you come to study sociology? That's an interesting question. As a child, I was always that type of kid who could look at a situation across the room. And even if I didn't know the people, I could tell what was going on by the way they were acting. And see, that's not psychology, that's sociology. I learned later on, that's called the sociological imagination. The sociological imagination is an awareness of the social forces that are at work around you. I always had that. And so I remember vividly, when uh, I was a senior in uh, high school. And I was, I was good with almost in all my classes. I, I wasn't sh sure what I wanted to do. So and this, is a, this shows a mother's love. She took the Norfolk State catalog and started with the A's and started going through there reading those different, different majors to me. And when she said sociology and the study of pattern relationships, I said, that's me. <laughs> I've been a sociologist all my life. That's it. So unlike a lot of students, a lot of students, they try something else, business or whatever, and, 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 they, and then all of a sudden they had trouble in it. So they, they, they popped up. Well, I like the, like the sociology elective. So I'll, be, I'll switch my major sociology. So I can get it. That was never the case with me. I was good at math. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, I, was a, I, I was a sociology major from the, from the very beginning because I knew that sociology was what I was about. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so what groups did you belong to in college? Ah, you know, in college, uh, I was president, I was in a sociology club. I was also president of the gerontology club. Uh, and of course, I was a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. I pledged in spring of 76, the Epsilon Pi chapter at Norfolk State. And of course today I'm, I'm the president of the local graduate chapter, Beta Pi Lambda. And so, and so I'm very active in all of those. And also, even when I was, a, I also had a singing group and a backup band when I was in college. Okay. Uh, we, call, we, call, we call ourselves the Uniques. And, uh, and so we were one of those, one of those groups we're singers, we're singers and dancers. We had the strobe lights and the white gloves. And so, like, so when we danced, like we were in slow, dancing in slow motion. Uh, and so, yeah, so we're that type of group. Uh, just as much, uh, more, just as much entertainers as, uh -huh. as singers. And, um, and, and so, so yeah, so, so those are, that's what I was pretty much, and I also had a part-time job. I used to work in my, uh, my aunt, uh, one of my aunts on my father's side uh, owned a, uh, a little convenience store. And so it was called, it was uh, actually had a little, it actually, it, was, it had like a little pharmacy and as well as a, uh, a, a little dinette there, you know. So, I, and I used to work behind the counter 
uh, there, and that, that gave, I worked there, and then, then in my senior year, I, uh, I worked at, uh, I worked at 7-Eleven, and they don't have them up here, but it, they're pretty big down. I hear, I hear we're getting one, Doc. I hear we're getting some of those Slurpees coming. Oh, yeah, That's there's nothing like a Slurpee, you know, all the, <laughs> all the other stuff is just, just uh, imitations. That's right, imitations. That that's not for real. So it sounds like you had a really um, full uh, college life, and you are still involved with the apples, alphas, as you said. Now you're you're the president. So, what does fraternity life mean uh, to you? Let me tell you something. Um, just to kind of give you an idea, when I when I got on the pledge line. We didn't have, we're, there are certain days where we have to wear a shirt and tie. I didn't have a tie, okay? So one of my big brothers gave me a tie. But the thing is, I didn't know how to tie it. So my Dean of Pleasures taught me how to tie a tie. Because you see, that's the type of thing that a, a father should do. Um, you know, God bless, my, uh, bless his soul. He, he was a fun-loving guy, okay? But he wasn't the kind of guy to stay stay still long enough to teach his son how to tie a tie. Alpha Phi Alpha did that, okay? And so Alpha Phi Alpha was the type of place that that allowed a person who, who had certain talents and aspirations to develop and grow. You know, the reason that I joined Alpha was because there are other groups on uh, on campus, and some, there's some they're doing some some reasonably responsible things, and there were some that were just about partying. But when I saw the Alpha Men, uh, and their and their motto uh, uh, being about uh, scholarship, manly deeds, scholarship, and love for all mankind, and and this is the this is the uh, the the, um, the fraternity of W.E.B. Du Bois and Thurgood Marshall and Martin Luther King. Okay, this is this is this is where most most not all but most of the black leaders uh, came from, and uh, men of distinction. And this is the first black uh, Greek level fraternity, and we still hold a certain distinction. In fact, there was a recent I saw a recent article. I think it was done by Forbes or Time magazines, talking about the top fraternities. And it, they were even talking about like at the undergraduate level too. Right there, right there in terms of most distinguished was Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. This included white fraternities too. So there, there are probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of fraternities, but we're up there. Uh, it's because we're about business. And on that campus, whenever I looked around, you know, it was the alphas who were behind the scenes taking care of business. Uh -huh. And so, and that's why, you know, alpha men take care of business. We, we make sure things keep running, you know? <laughs> yes, sir. So, yeah. So, so, yeah. So that's what, that's what, that's what alpha me. I mean, Hey, my heart. And I, and, and I, that's why I dedicate, it, it was certainly, it's, I think it's a, it's a privilege to be the leader uh, of, of a local organization. And I, I'm certainly doing everything I can to add to the legacy. Is there anything special that's coming up in 2021 you wanted to share that the Alphas are doing in the area? Well, I tell you what, it's pretty hard to do anything live. 
normally I'd be talking about our black and gold ball, but it we're it does not looking it's not looking like it's gonna happen. Uh we usually have that right around the Martin Luther King weekend. But one thing what we will do, I'm pretty certain I will, I'm I'm hoping that we have our summer solstice. Okay. And we usually have that in have that in June. But we are having a we're having a program on uh December 5th. Uh, it's going to be a live Zoom program. We're partnering with uh, Spectrum. Uh, we actually were the recipient of a, a major Spectrum grant. Uh, there were there were about 20, 20 recipients nationally, and we're uh, bringing technology, some technological innovations, to the local Black community, and so. There's, there's going to be a, a joint kickoff with that, and we're going to be talking about other things. So, uh, I'll, I'll make sure that you get, Tanya, you get the, the link and the information about that, so you can get that out to your listeners. We, Great. And uh, yeah, it, this is going to be a major kickoff for the, what we're going to be doing uh, moving forward. Thanks for sharing. Sure. All right, good. Am I, am I next? <laughs> I think. Well, we can we can keep going. There's a couple more things we wanted to talk to you about. Sure. I think. Um, we're talking about sociology and, um, you know, the, the research. And Ainsley had a really interesting question I'd love to have him pose to you. Yeah, so in, in this era of research, a lot of academic research is uh, based, is data-driven. Um, a little over 100 years ago, a lot of research was based on the assumptions made during the eugenics movement. Um, how do you separate the remnants from that era, from the data you are gathering for your current work? Excellent question, and I, that goes that, that goes back to the man who is the father of modern scientific sociology. That's W.E.B. Du Bois. <clears throat> you see, when white sociologists were doing what what he would often call uh, car window sociology, what the hell? Okay. <laughs> Instead of they look out their windows and just theorize and speculate, because well, sociology has its origin in in uh, in religion and philosophy. So a lot of the old the old sociologists were were either theologians or or philosophers, and so they'd be philosophizing and theorizing. Particularly when it comes to black folks, they were just justifying justifying uh, white supremacy. Well. If you go back to Du Bois's classic, The Philadelphia Negro, that work is just encyclopedic in terms of the range of topics. Many of the, many of the issues that we talk about today, Du Bois first documented, and you know what he did? The reason why Du Bois is the father of modern sociology, because he was the first in America to do an empirical study empirical study. In short, he collected and analyzed data. Okay. And so the boy set that standard. Oh. And uh, even though, even though for, uh, for, for over a hundred years, there was a, a, a tendency by a main mainstream sociology to try to either ignore or minimize his work. But there, there's a group of us in the American social who are part of the Association of Black Sociologists, who also also part of the American uh, Sociological Association, we pushed, and 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 roughly about a decade ago, maybe a little longer, about 15 years ago, 
uh, the American Sociological Association established uh, the award that is his higher, highest award given annually for research. It's the highest reward, uh, award, period, in Du Bois's name. Okay, and so um, and, and 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 it's a recognition. And in fact, next semester, I actually am teaching a, a course that's that's uh, that's a dualistic graduate and undergraduate uh, on uh, Du Boisian sociology. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Oh, yeah. oh, so so it was Du Bois who laid the foundation. Okay, it was Du Bois who first uh, who first. Uh, Brought together quantitative and qualitative me uh, methods. In fact, so he he was a f he introduced mixed methods in sociology. Mm -hmm. Okay, a lot of people don't realize realize that along with he uh, he analyzed actuarial data, census data, and then he collected his own data. He he did a survey, actually interviewed, conducted interviews. Uh, he did participant observation, and he and he pretty much did it on his own. Oh. And so, don't get me started. I can, I, you know, I, I, I can do a whole lecture on boys at the drop of a hat. But well, you're gonna, you're gonna do it next semester. That's right, a whole semester. Clinic. Yeah, that's right, a whole semester. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm saying is, is that we, uh, the boys set that standard. Yeah. And even when I was a graduate student, I, I would talk about the boys in school of sociology, and they were, they were, oh yeah, okay, okay, okay. But there, I. I could see, even as a graduate student, that it was Du Bois to set that standard. So that's how I make sure that uh, I'm not falling into that eugenics type, uh, victim blaming, social social pathology type of yeah. sociology. All right, I just have to yeah. look. I just have to look to the man. Right. Sorry, the leader, Du Bois. Y'all got y'all y'all got y'all got, got to forgive me now. Next yeah. <laughs> next. next Next month, if the good Lord spares me, I'm gonna hit the big six five. So y'all gotta give me a little bit of. I know I look good for my age, but y'all got y'all got to give me a break now. I'm a little old okay. school, but uh, well, we're no. gonna give you a break, Doc, because you are all over. You spread your talents all over, and I I want to really uh, talk to you about something that I think you just got finished with. You were um, part of the Allyship Institute. And they did a series uh, at Proctor's, and you got to interview Ibram Kendi and Eddie Glaude Jr. And I was just wondering to myself, what what impressed you about them, and what are some of the other community organizations that were involved, and you know, how did those kinds of conversations about race and racism um, help you really help? other people to see that there's actually hope for the future? Well, yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, I actually found, I think there's one thing I found that was common to both of those speakers, and that is humility. I said, mm. whoa, they were so accessible, uh, so open, so warm. And, uh, and it, I was really happy uh, about the fact that I mean I'm I'm a little older than both. Uh, I think that Glaude may be in his early fifties, and uh, Kende's in his late thirties, close to forty. Uh, but I felt proud of them. I had this sense of pride because I could uh, there are scholars who 
who are a little younger than myself, and yet they're doing so well. And uh, and it, and because I, you see, I've always had the philosophy, and those of us who, who really about the community have this philosophy, and that is, uh, you, you you rejoice in in the success of your people, because that means that because of, if they're successful, one person. Yeah. You know, there's that 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 means there also could be success for others. I don't see it as a zero sum game, and so uh, that means that that means there's hope for for others as well, including myself. I, mean, I still I'm still continuing to to uh, uh, realize some of my my goals. I and, and not only and even in academia, things that I things that I'm doing, and and it's just encouraging. Uh, and one of the things that that really so was so helpful is see see uh, every scholar has a slightly different twist on a particular topic, um, and you, and and so even when it comes to racism, you know I introduced the uh, uh, a uh, operational definition of racism and uh, to my field, and so and so and so when I when faced with their when faced with their definitions, I was able to not only compare that with mine, but to see how, in a sense, since various various views can be blended. Mm-hmm. Okay, they weren't in opposition; they were just mm-hmm. slightly different. Mm-hmm. And so, you take ten uh, uh, Kennedy, who 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 uh, thought that, um, well, he he argues that you either are racist or anti-racist. Okay, and so. Uh, and that's cool. However, I believe racism is a little more nuanced than that. I think that, that in fact, that there are levels of racism. For instance, uh, there's a, a distinct difference uh, in the racism that, say, that's faced um, in contemporary times, that's faced by Asians and Latinos, and that's faced by Black people. Okay. In fact, anti-black racism is of is of is of such a degree that other groups actually benefit from anti-black racism. Okay. In fact, other groups often perpetuate and and support anti-black racism. And so yes, groups experience racism, but the different levels of racism. And so so when you start talking about allies, you're not just talking about whites being allies. You also have to talk about other minorities who have greater access to white space. They also have to be allies as well. Because oftentimes, you take right now, we're seeing a lot of movement, things going on because of the Black Lives Matter movement, okay? Now, have you noticed that the other groups have been kind of quiet with all this? Have you, anybody knows that besides me? Now, here's something else, but yet, Whenever it seems like there's there seems like some policy or some change happening, you see groups say, "Well, what about us?" Okay, so they come out and so they become. They, I'm not gonna say come out of the woodwork, but they but they they definitely are become vocal when it when it when it seems like there is something to be gained. But 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 when it when it comes time for the struggle, no, they they are basically uh, a wall. Now, and this is a general pattern. There are some exceptions. But generally speaking, they're not there for us. Okay, they they benefit from anti-black racism, 
And so, so race is a little more nuanced than that. And that's the way it works in our society, Doc, right? I mean, it's all about the ladder and and who can you step on in order to get up that ladder. Absolutely, absolutely. I hope I didn't over answer that question about about that. Uh, but you know, well, I, this is your view. I'm glad that you were were able to able able to share it, oh, yeah. uh, and I think it's going to be informative for people who, who are listening to. But I was hoping you could also maybe share just quickly some of the other groups that were involved in that, and then we can get to the fun mm -hmm. part. Sure. Uh, the uh, the Schenectady County Junior League was very much involved. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, United Way was very much involved. Okay. And, and Proctors was, was very much involved. I mean, those were, those were the, the three main groups that, that were very much, much involved. And there were, there, were, there were individuals who happened to represent their organizations like people from the Schenectady uh, Schenectady Public Schools, okay. um, uh, people from NAACP, okay. uh, Schenectady NAACP, what have you. But the main partners, the main partners were those three, the Junior League, uh, United Way, and Proctors. Any other further events uh, that the Allyship Institute is going to uh, be putting on? Oh yeah, we're going to we're going to be doing a, another twenty one day challenge. We'll be announcing that soon, and we also are going to uh, uh, we we'll continue with the institute. The institute was not a one shot deal. We're in the process of actually institutionalizing it. Okay, so uh, and but the most important thing is is that we want we want to make sure that that people who who want to be part of of, of the struggle against racism, they need to know that they're not alone. It's, yeah. it's, a lot of times it's difficult. Uh, oftentimes uh, people will stay quiet because they're afraid to get out there on by themselves. They know they're not alone or they don't know how to get out there. And one of the things we did was to give them the tools, not only to articulate uh, certain positions and realities, but also to give them the support they need so that they can step out there and know that uh, that there's someone who's who has their back. Well, that is fantastic. I can't wait to hear more uh, about that. And I think that there are so many people out there that want to do this kind of work. And it's just a matter of being able to share your information so people know where to go because there are a, a vast network of folks in the area um, that want to do this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the other special talents that you had. You mentioned that you sang uh, in a group back in college, but Doc, tell us what's going on from your uh, talent uh, in the vocal area lately. Well, you know, uh, uh, for a number of years, uh, I, I had my uh, Motown pop funk band is played around in the area. It's called Doc Horton and J Street Band. And if I had to describe us, uh, I would say that we're, we're kind of like a 21st century version of the Commodores, you know? And, uh, and, and I think we put on a, an exciting show. People really seem to enjoy us. And, we, and, and we've done a lot in the area. And, and we try to, uh, try to also uh, develop uh, other young artists and, and uh, to bring other people along the way. I, and, and there are people been in my band who 
uh, I, 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 they were students and I helped develop them and then they go on to start their own bands and stuff like that. And so, and, and that's rewarding. And so, but, uh, but you know, COVID kind of put uh, certain things on hold. And there are some bands who are trying to get out there, but in reality, uh, things are just uh, so dangerous. And, uh, and frankly, given my age, I don't want to, I don't want to take that risk. So what uh, our plan is to, uh, we're going, we're working on some of, uh, some of my original music and then uh, we're going to get back out hopefully in April. Uh, hopefully by that time we'll have some, we'll have some new leadership in this country at the national level and they'll be able to, to, to contain and control uh, this coronavirus and we'll be able to uh, safely be able to perform again. But I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm not discouraged at all because it just gives us the time to, to, to pull back and start and focus on our original music. And so, yeah, we're going to, we're going to re-record uh, one song that I've done and, and record some other stuff. My, I got stuff that I've written ever since I was a, a, a kid uh, as a teenager right up to things I've written uh, relatively recently. I've, I've always been a songwriter. And so, yeah, so we're, we're going to get back out there and, and uh, showcase some original work when we, when we do. That's, uh, that sounds good. And just so uh, folks know, we're gonna play some of uh, Doc's original stuff at the, at the end here. Uh, and that's where we are, we're coming up to the end. And I wanted to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life to come and speak with us. And if folks want to get a hold of you, Doc, I mean, you've got so many different hats between being a college professor, uh, part of Doc Horton, leader, excuse me, leader of Doc Horton and the J Street Band, and also uh, a consultant. What is the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Ah, good question. I tell you what, I, I, there are there are a number of uh, of emails that I could I could give you. I'll give you the simplest one, uh, and uh, the simplest email I have is my university email, and that's hdh at albany.edu. And uh, from there, uh, you know, if you're interested in something, I can kind of direct you to into the right place. I can put on the right hat. All right, put, yes. you can put on the right hand. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, Doc, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, finally, I have a chance to sit down and listen to your philosophy, your ideas. You've got some things turning in my head right now. Um, it's been a pleasure. And um, to close out, I just want to say, check out our Instagram, HVCC underscore O-D-E-I. Facebook at HVCCODEI. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much. It's, what a pleasure. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Break it down.